Hey, 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 how are we doing today? Good? What? What's wrong with you people? You just got done singing the song. We're going to look at what God has to say. Uh, you're not outside. You don't live in West Virginia. Um, the Chiefs are playing today. Uh, you just got done uh, worshiping God. You're going to in a second. How are we doing today? Good? All right. All right. Good. There's some of you who are so like, I will not talk. That's fine. We're going to pray for you. Anyway, um, my, I'm not going through puberty, and I do not normally sound this sultry. Uh, my name is Caleb, and I am having allergy and sinus issues, so that's why my voice sounds like this. Um, but I am a, a friend of Danny. Danny is a good friend. I love him. I've known him for years. Um, <coughs> and you guys are so lucky to have him at this church. I want you to know this, that if I lived in this area, that I would be attending this church. This is a church I would attend. Uh, if somebody invited you here and you're brand new and you haven't been to church in a while and you see what we're talking about today and they bribed you or promised you dinner, uh, make sure they pay up or Pastor Danny will make sure they pay up, okay? If, if, you're, if you haven't been to church ever or maybe it's been a while and you are coming here and you're just checking out the church and kicking the tires, checking underneath the hood, seeing how it runs, man, I hope you keep on coming back for the rest of the series and for the next series just to find out what this church is all about. This is a church where it's okay not to be okay, but we journey together in life and we try to follow Jesus or we try to learn more about him. We try to help him, uh, help each other no matter what. Um, so I'm a, I'm a minister and I'm an author and uh, I live in the Los Angeles area because I really enjoy not having money and water. Um, <laughs> But I know we're not going to move anytime soon because my wife's family lives out there. So, you know, you know, me familia. And so oh, we have a seventh grade boy named Joel and we have a fifth grade daughter named Rachel. I got to tell you about Joel. I love them equally, but Joel is our firstborn. We were told that we couldn't have kids. And then we got pregnant at an infertility clinic. And I was so excited to get to the hospital and see the birth. You know why? Because I had seen the movies and I thought I knew what to expect, that there would be this light from heaven shining down, epic underscoring John Williams Star Wars music. The baby would come out pristine clean, making cooing noises, would grab my finger, and with perfect pronunciation would say the word father. And that is not what happened. Not at all. <clears throat> Everything was going great uh, in there. And then the doctors and the nurses walk in in what looked like hazmat outfits and welding masks. And when my son came into the world, my expression went from this to, oh. I said, you got to put him back in. He's not done cooking. He came out. He was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. He smelled funny. He looked weird. Like, I didn't know that the human head could be many shapes at once. Square, circle, triangle, octagon, rectangle. His head was all the shapes. And it wouldn't stand still. Okay, he didn't make cute cooing baby noises. He made noises like he was the creature from the Black Lagoon and they wrapped him up in a white blanket and gave him to me and they said, what do you think? And here, here's me, I have ADHD, I don't always have a filter and I didn't have a filter when they asked, what do you think about your son? And my first words out loud were, he looks like a turtle. <laughs> no joke. 
my daughter, she looked like this big red juicy ladybug when she was born. And if you had been there, you would have said, man, that's messy. And you'd be right, okay? But in that moment, I don't know where it came from. I just loved my children in that moment. No matter, they didn't do anything to earn my love. I just loved them. And I knew that I never would stop, no matter who they were, no matter what they did. I would love them with that same intensity. And believe me, my children have done things to me, okay? They have taken my money, okay? Um, they, 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 they have taken up space in the house. They, I have to feed them. Um, they, they, don't, they smell now. They bring home stomach flus and colds. Before children, I looked like Zac Efron. And then I had children, and this is what you see right here. Post-children, okay? And it doesn't matter, though. I love my children, no matter how messy they are. That's exactly how God feels about you and everyone else. You see, in society, we like to, uh, we like to label each other by our messiness, categorize each other, define other people by their messiness or what we perceive to be messy in their lives. But when you follow Jesus, he looks past the false definitions that lie, takes you out of the categories, rips off the labels, and he says, that's my child. And no matter how messy you are, I'm with you. Jesus doesn't leave. I love the fact that God loves messy people like me. I do not understand how God can love other messy people like, you know what I'm talking about. You work with some of these people. You take the long way to the bathroom so you don't have to walk by their cubicle. You sit in class with some of these people. You see them at the gym. You see them at Starbucks. Some of you just got done hanging out with them for Thanksgiving and Christmas because you share DNA. Or maybe you married into a family and these are not the people that you would go hang out with if you didn't share DNA. Sometimes family can just feel like a loving experience at the DMV. You know what I mean? It really can. How do we love people who voted for the other candidate? Those people. Those people. How do we love people who are in relationships that we may not agree with or may not understand? How do we love people that don't understand us? They don't understand our relationships. How do we love people who work for that organization that we'd never work for, that go to that church, that are part of that religion, that ascribe to this particular opinion, that has made this decision in their life? How do we love people that are friends with that person over there or belong to that group over here? How do we love people that are messy in different ways than we are? And this is so important because if you follow Jesus, even if you don't follow Jesus, you're going to want to know what this is. But here's what it is. Okay, you will never be able to add value to somebody's life if you do not have influence with them. You are fighting for influence in the lives of people you love. And if you don't have influence with them, they will probably look for influence other places that you may not be comfortable with. So I wanna help you build influence with people ultimately so that you can share the message of Jesus Christ with them. And to do that, we're gonna turn to the fourth book of the New Testament. It's called John. It was written by one of uh, Jesus' students, or what we would call a disciple, who spent <clears throat> three years with Jesus, uh, following him wherever he went, seeing what he did, hearing what he said, seeing what happened to him, and that John, his student, wrote all these things in this account of his life, the fourth book of the New Testament, so that we would have a record of the things that Jesus did, said, and things that happened to him. And we're going to join Jesus about nine months into his ministry 
when uh, he has an unusual, extraordinary thing happen to him. So if you have your Bibles or your mobile devices, you can join me in John chapter 8, beginning with verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law <coughs> and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? We're just going to read the beginning of verse 6 and then take a break. But John says that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So you have the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You have the celebrity ministers of the day and the people that transcribed the Old Testament on manuscript after manuscript. There were some 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day. They had the entire Old Testament memorized, commentaries on the Old Testament memorized, and they hated Jesus because they controlled people through fear and legalism and control because if you get people to be afraid, you can control them, Right? We've seen that in presidential elections. And by the way, hint, hint, this is an election year. So don't be afraid. But we're going to talk more about that in a second. And, and so the, their numbers are decreasing because Jesus comes on the scene <clears throat> and he comes full of grace and truth, compassion and conviction, love and principle, okay? And they need to get rid of Jesus in their minds because they think if we don't, he is actually going to... We're, we're, not, we're going to be irrelevant. So they find this woman caught, and they catch her in the act of adultery. Okay? Do you hear me? In the act. In the act. It's like, how do they find her? They're creepers, right? They take her, and they drag her before Jesus, and they put her in front of Jesus. And they say, hey, in the law, Moses commands us to stone her. What do you say? And they think Jesus is going to be wrong either way. He's going to lose faith with the people or he's going to break the law, whatever he answers. They're trying to check mating. And you know what? The Bible does say in Deuteronomy 22, which is a different context, a different time. We're not under this agreement with God anymore. But it does say that after a trial, which they skipped and other steps, uh, you can take the man and the woman caught in adultery outside the city gates and stone them. Did you hear what I said? A man and a woman. And I read the story and I'm like, Where's the dude? Where's the guy? You ever thought that when you read this story? Did he get a get-out-of-jail-free card? I guess what really makes me mad is they don't care about this woman's pain. They don't care about what she's been through. They don't care about her healing, hearing her story, her redemption. They are using her as much as the man who's having an affair with her was using her. That's messed up. Now, I don't know what your reaction would be, but Jesus' reaction, a little awkward. Some of you are like, Caleb, thou shalt not call what Jesus does awkward. I didn't say it was creepy. I said it was awkward. I bet you never responded this way when you're in the middle of an argument. Look at this, end of verse six. Jesus bent down and started right down on the ground with his finger. That's awkward. If you don't think so, it's because you've been reading the Bible since God was a boy. When was the last time you were in an argument with someone and you said, hold on, my wife and I were in an argument a couple weeks ago. I tried it with her. She, I don't recommend it. <laughs> She's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to act like Jesus. I figured one of us should. 
I'm just kidding. I did not say that to her. I, I would have a black eye, and my wife is a fiery Latina. She would go off on me, and I would be hanging out with Jimmy Hoffa at that point. So trust me, that wouldn't happen. That wouldn't happen. People try to figure out what it was that Jesus was writing in the dirt, in the dust, in the sand. Some people think maybe verses of scripture or the sins of the people, but I found this really interesting verse in the Old Testament spoken by a preacher or what we would call a prophet, and I think it helps us kind of see what Jesus was doing. See if you can make the connection. Jeremiah 17, 13. Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame, and those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Or in the original Hebrew, this can mean the dirt, the ground, the sand, or the mud. Just like in John 8. Why? Because they, not her, they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. If I were a betting person, <clears throat> I bet that Jesus was writing down the names of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the sand and the dirt and the dust. They thought that this woman was outside the bounds of God's love because of her sin. And yet Jesus, I think, was telling them, you're further away <coughs> because you have all this knowledge, you have all this, you have all this theology memorized, but you have no love. Quick sidebar here. Hear me out on this. For those of you who know the Bible really well, for those of you who have been a Christian since the Crusades, hear me out on this right now. It doesn't matter how much you know if you don't have any love to show. God doesn't care. He don't care. If you have all the verses in the Bible memorized and yet you are not loving and gracious towards someone, okay? Love is the ultimate application of every theological doctrine you can imagine. You can be, have correct doctrine and be an absolute heretic in how you treat people. You can have correct doctrine and still be wrong altogether. You don't have love actually Paul says it, God says it through Paul, you're like a clanging cymbal in my ear. You ever had somebody do that to you? My son did it to me once. Never again. Don't be annoying. You're too good, you're too, you're too pretty. All of you, don't be annoying. Let's go back to John chapter eight, verse seven. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down, he wrote on the ground. Now, this is brilliant. You see, they believed that people had sin. Everyone is messy and broken. And they believed back then that God was the only being in existence without sin, just like the leadership of this church believes in both things. So <clears throat> he has the Pharisees in a checkmate. If they picked up a rock and threw it, they would be lying, claiming to be sinless and throwing the rock, they'd be lying. And out of the 613 commands in the Old Testament that make the law, God put lying in the top 10. Lying is a big deal because it breaks the relationship. It damages it. But he also knows that they won't throw a rock because if they pick up a rock and throw it claiming to be sinless, and if God is the only sinless being, who are they claiming to be? God. Blasphemy is also punishable by the death penalty, just like adultery. Checkmate. I tell people all the time, you may not believe in Jesus, you gotta admit, he's got mad skills. Like you do not wanna get in an argument with Jesus. I love verse nine, I actually think it's funny, look at this. At this, or after hearing this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. I can just see him like, okay, like that. 
until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. But Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And, and this last part of verse 11, this is the whole reason why we went through the passage. If you can underline it in, in your Bible, on your bubble device, if you can highlight it, it's one long sentence in the original language, which it, it is the key of how we can love people who are messy in different ways than we are, okay? Here's what he says. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Pastor Danny Shafter uh, last week or a couple weeks ago talked about this. Grace and truth, and I want to build on top of that. You see, John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17 say that Jesus Christ came full of both grace and truth at the same time. <clears throat> now, everybody in here, including myself, you lean towards one or the other. You're either all about the grace or all about the truth. You're all about the mercy or all about the rules, okay? Your version of God is like a cross between Olaf and Buddy the Elf. You're the people that on social media say, God loves, God loves. We're not gonna talk about anything difficult. Sweep it underneath the rug, God loves. And then people over here, the truth people, like we love you, but you're equally as annoying. And, and you, you don't know you are, but you are. You, you love to correct us. Like we'll be talking to you, yeah, you know, like Paul said in Philippians, no, that was Colossians. You know, like that story about uh, Moses and Numbers. No, that was Exodus. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I love to be corrected. Thank you. As a matter of fact, personally, I didn't know how much I love to be corrected until I got married. <laughs> when my wife rides with me, she's like a walking DMV manual. It's so much fun. You're like my kids if you're all about the love. When we play Monopoly, rules are merely a suggestion. You don't have to follow them. Or you're like my wife. Before the game, she's like, now let's all read through the rule book. Rules control the fun. Rules make fun more fun. I'm like, you know what? I'm having so much fun, I may have to set this game out. One can only have so much fun in one day. Just go hang out in my room and stare at the ceiling. Okay? But if you take sides between grace and truth, you're going to heaven, see you there. I'm going for the Matthew McConaughey new body. But here's the deal. Don't ever call yourselves mature Christians, because you're not, and I'm not when I act like that. Mature Christians don't take sides between grace and truth. If Jesus didn't take sides, and if he stood for both, why do you and I get to take sides? You know what it's like when you take sides? You're like a rubber band holding it by one side. When you say, I'm all about the grace, but you have no truth. You ever see somebody hold a rubber band like this? No. You know why? It's annoying. It serves no purpose. Just like when people say, I have all this truth, but they have no grace. It's powerless. So where's the power? If you stand for both and say, I'm about the grace and the truth, where's the tension? Where's the power? The power is found in the tension of standing for both grace and truth. And tension is uncomfortable, okay? But there's a name for this tension. It's love. You see, I believe that love is the tension between grace and truth. Love is the tension that you feel between grace and truth. And when you run away from this tension, you're running away from love. And here's the reason why people take sides. It's spiritual laziness. 
100%. It takes no effort on your part to be all about the grace if that's what you normally are. It takes all the effort in the world to stretch over to the truth side if you're not naturally a truth person. And this tension is uncomfortable. If it was comfortable, we'd call it something else. But we call it tension. And you feel this tension where you're like, okay, the Bible says this, but my friend is making this decision, okay, and, and Jesus said this, but I keep on struggling with this, okay, and, and, and Paul and Peter say this over here, you know, and then over here, my, my family member is making this decision, and you're like, oh, I just feel so uncomfortable. Welcome to Christianity 101. If you don't like tension, you might want to rethink and go to a different religion, bruh. I'm just being honest. You're like, that's not true. Sure it is. There's tension all over your faith. Like, you believe in one God but the Trinity? Hello. Well, you, don't th- you think the Trinity's easy to explain to people? Dude, I always have, the, not, not, I'm, I'm not saying that you do, but the silence is deafening. Like, I always have people that say, well, you know, I can explain the Trinity. No, you can't. You can't even explain all the minor prophets in order, okay? I had a friend try to compare the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to an egg in a sermon. It was awful. He said, you know, the Father is like the outer shell. And the Son, he's like the egg white. Well, the Holy Spirit, he's the yolk that just runs through all of us. And I called him after I listened to it. I said, don't ever do that again. That's weird. God is not an egg. He's not a pizza divided into three parts. He's not ice, water, and steam. But there's other places of tension in your faith. You believe that the Bible was inspired of God, but he used sinful people to write it. God is in control, but allows us to have free will, love God, love people. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Death and evil were defeated at the cross and the resurrection, not yet destroyed. You can be a good preacher and still have hair. Come on. So why do we run from the tension of grace and truth? And we don't run from all the other tension that we hold on to. I'll tell you why. Because you feel grace and truth like nothing else. It is a tension like nothing else because it always has to do with yourself or your relationships. And you are more emotionally attached to your relationships than you are the concept of the inspiration of scripture. So who's the messy person you need to live with in your life? Let me tell you about mine. It's my mom and dad. Uh, they both used to be professors at the University of Missouri-Columbia, University of Missouri-Kansas City, Stevens College, other schools. We lived in Columbia, Missouri. And when I was two years old, my parents divorced. And both of them uh, went into same-sex relationships. My dad never had one monogamous partner. He had several friends. But my mom went into a 22-year relationship with a psychologist named Vera. And they were together until Vera died of cancer in 2005. They moved to Kansas City. They were very activist-oriented. They were on the local board of directors for GLAAD there. So I grew up in the LGBTQ community in Kansas City, in Columbia, and I just, you know, I I would go with my parents to bars and clubs and house parties and um, pride parades and everything like that. And people say, oh, you must have seen awful things. No, not really. There are actually a lot of fun people there. And in some cases, they were more fun than Christians, believe you me. I've met a lot of Christians in my day, including myself, okay? But I remember this one pride parade when I was 9, 10, or 11 that I was marching in. <coughs> At the end of it, 
there were all, the, I was marching with my mom and her partner, and at the end of it, there were all these Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you, no room for you, turn or burn. And when people from the parade would go try to talk to them, the protesters, the Christians, they would get sprayed with water and urine saying, this is what Jesus thinks of you. I remember like it was yesterday, and I would look at my mom, I said, why are they acting like that? And she said, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate gay people. If you are not like them, they will not like you. And I saw this again and again, proved when, when families would ignore their young sons dying of AIDS. And I just thought to myself, if Christians are this bad, I can't imagine how awful Jesus Christ is. And I wanted nothing to do with Christians. So by the time I got to be 16, I was sneaking out at night, getting drunk, partying it up. My hair was down to here, and since then, the Lord removeth and addeth other places. It's not funny. He and I don't joke about that. I'm just kidding. It's funny. It's a little funny. My wife doesn't think it's funny. But so I got invited at the age of 16 to go to this Bible study led by a high schooler, four high schoolers, and I thought, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to go and be a pretend Christian and dismantle their faith, and that turned out real well, as you can tell. And I had never cracked a Bible or even been in a Christian household before. So I grabbed my dad's Bible, went in, like his old Bible that he like never opened, went into this Christian household, okay? And if this describes your household, I'm not insulting you. If it describes your household, more power to you, okay? But it looked like a Bible bookstore or a Christian bookstore threw up in their living room. It looked like a riot happened and they raided it. They had all the Christian bookstore statues and all the framed pictures on the wall. You know what I'm talking about. I was there with a friend. I leaned over. I'm like, why do these people have framed pictures of animals they don't own? Like sheep. There's a lion, a shepherd kid holding, holding a cobra. What's this place? They had Christian breath mints. Do you guys know we have our own breath mints? They're called testaments. Some of you are like, huh? Google it after. You'll get it. Don't ever order them unless you want to see what cyanide and peppermint taste like together. Somebody came up from the basement and said, ah, oh, join us in the basement. I'm like, oh, probably going to sacrifice the chicken down here. And we went downstairs, gathered in a circle. Everybody's reading a verse from 1 Corinthians. They get to me. I can't find 1 Corinthians. So I just choose a random verse in 1 Chronicles about some dude getting impaled. Um, they said, where are you? I said, I'm in First Chronicles. They said, you're in the Old Testament. And I was like, does that mean there's a new one? Like there's updated 2.0. Like I had no clue. I thought the Bible was a bunch of dusty, old, irrelevant books written by a bunch of uh, uh, uptight dead people from the Middle East. And the more that I read, the more that I went, the more that I saw that Jesus had very deep theological convictions. He had very real expectations of how we should live our lives and treat other people no matter what. But as Pastor Andy Stanley said, uh, down at North Point Church, he also had relationships with people who were nothing like him and people who were nothing like him liked him back. And I was like, I can get on board with that. I don't want a sheep picture, but I can get on board with Jesus. And so I knew that I would have to study what the Bible had to say about sexuality. And so I came to two conclusions that I still hold today. Here's the first one. That God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed in marriage between uh, one man and one woman. But a theological conviction is never a catalyst to devalue another human being. 
Your biblical beliefs should never be the basis to sideline another person, to make them feel less than, to leave them out or to treat them poorly, okay? If you do, I don't know who you're following, it, it ain't Jesus. It's a warped view of Jesus and you in your head. And so, like, then I was like, I was like, I was so nervous to tell my parents. Like, you know why? If you can imagine how an LGBTQ teenager feels coming out to their conservative Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old coming out as a Christian to my three activist gay parents. And they kicked me out of the house. I'll go speak at conferences some of the time. Students will come up to me and they'll say, you have no idea what it felt like to be rejected by my family. And I'm like, actually, I do. And the oppression that you feel that you receive from other people never lends you the credibility or the opportunity to oppress other people or cause other people pain. Because when you do that, you show how weak you are and you actually start imitating the very people that you say hurt you the most. How do you live in the tension of grace and truth? You got to avoid fear. My parents were afraid. They assumed that I was one of them, those people. So if you want to live in the tension of grace and truth, here's the first thing you got to do. Don't allow the fear of some to determine the value of many. Don't allow fear from some people to determine the value of many people. This is especially important for an election year. Need I say more? You see, we fear whatever it is we don't understand or whatever makes us feel out of control. And contrary to what some people will tell you, fear is not a bad thing. I've heard people say, oh, you know, fear's bad. You're a moron, okay? God gave us fear on purpose. Now, we should only respect God. We shouldn't have toxic fear. That's why the Bible says fear God and fear nothing. But look, dude, if I'm hiking up a trail and I almost step on a rattlesnake, I'm gonna be afraid. You know what I'm not gonna do? I'm not gonna pick it up and say, this is my new pet. I'm gonna name it Sally put a pink studded collar on it and a leash. I'm going to cuddle it. It's just, it's, your tongue is so cute. Just, yeah, I'm going to be dead, okay? Fear is a great companion. It's a horrible leader. When fear starts to determine the direction of your life and define your relationships, you will inevitably mistreat people. If you allow fear to control your view of Jesus, you will end up with the wrong view of Jesus. Eventually, my parents let me back in. I went to Bible college in southern Missouri, um, got out of there as quickly as possible because all family trees just go straight up. They don't branch out down there. Um, I spent four years there, moved to L.A., but before I moved to L.A., while I was in college, I preached at a church for 18 months in the middle of Missouri. It was in a town of 50. We had 25 people in the church. We had the largest church per capita in the world at that time. And um, after 18 months, I was able to convince my mom to come to church with me. And so she came, and the next Sunday she didn't return. I guess the sermon wasn't that good. But I showed up, and there were two elders waiting for me on the doorstep, and they said, we want to talk to you, Caleb. I said, sure. They said, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I said, oh, well, I don't like you, so I quit. Like right now, finito, finished, done. They said, oh, you can't quit. You need to preach today. I said, oh, you don't want that. Not after this conversation. They said, no, we do. We need a sermon. 
I said, oh, you're going to get one. So I took my sermon, ripped it up. It was on fasting. Who cares about that anyway? There was this musician in the 80s or 90s. You may resonate with his name, Bon Jovi. He had a great song called Blaze of Glory that if you're going to take your final stand and go out, you're going to go out in a blaze of glory. And I went up there and I preached on grace and truth and love and conviction. And I walked out of that church, never turned back. And I said, God, if you allow me to be a part of a church, I want to be a part of a church filled with messy, broken, hurting people. Okay, people that are cutting, people that have had abortions, people that think they're perfect, people that have a lot of money and no money, people that have been in gangs, people in relationships that I may or may not understand or agree with, people who vote for this person or that person, okay, people that actually think Nickelback is a good band, uh, people like that, because that is what the church is, people. The church is a beautiful mosaic of messy, broken lives that God unites together to glorify himself. I do not believe for one second that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for a place masquerading as a church when it's really a members-only country club Pharisee factory where you have to agree with us to be with us or look like us to be with us. No, that is not a church. That is a misappropriation of Jesus Christ's blood. And so I, I left and I moved to Los Angeles, married my wife. Wish you could meet her. She's beautiful. Tan, tall, toned. She's got a six-pack. She goes to the gym every day. I think you can tell I watch a lot of Netflix and Disney+. Plus. She is a muy caliente Latina. And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor looked like a cross between Uncle Fester Grew and Dr. Evil. I mean, <laughs> she is a lucky lady. This is her eye candy every morning when she wakes up. We were at a church for 11 years, and we moved back and to preach in Dallas, Texas, because everybody's got to live in purgatory once. And while we were in Dallas, Texas, my parents moved down there, separately one another, be close to our family, and started attending the church that I was preaching at. And that taught me the second principle of how to live in the tension of grace and truth. Embrace the difference between acceptance and agreement. These are not the same. Society tries to tell you the same because society is being ruled by false dichotomies right now. Society is like, you know, there's no middle ground. You're either an extremist on that side or this side. No. It's going to snap our society, and we're going to backlash and react to it, okay? If you follow Jesus, you don't have to agree with everyone. You do have to accept everyone. When I say this, I mean you love somebody for who they are, for what they've done, for where they are in their life, um, no matter who, no matter what they've done, no matter if they cheer for the Raiders or not, you love these people, you feel with them, you walk with them. That does not mean you have to agree with every uh, decision they've made, relationship they have, opinion they hold, or belief they ascribe to. Okay? Acceptance is feeling with another person, as the author Brene Brown says. It is acknowledging their reality. Okay? Kind of like how God loved us before we loved him. And I saw this in action because people at this church treated my parents well. And, at the, and eventually at the ages of 69 and 70, my mom and dad gave their lives to Jesus Christ. I was expecting some kind of big answer like theological, philosophical, apologetics, defense of the faith. I said, what did it? They said, Caleb, people treated us like people, not like projects. So don't try out your new 
Kirk Cameron evangelistic moves, ninja moves on people. Those are weird. Practice friendship. Be a good friend. And if you're still stuck in this tension, you don't know what to do. You're like, I got invited to this wedding or my friend got engaged. You're like, they're in this relationship. Somebody came out to me. I don't know what to do. You've read the Bible. You call Pastor Danny at 2 a.m. He loves to be called at 2 a.m., by the way. He loves to be woken up. Try it sometime. You've done everything you can. And you just are like, this tension is getting too tough. I don't know what. I'm just going to resolve it and go to one side or the other. I want you to ask yourself this question. What am I willing to do to keep and build influence with, you fill in the blank, your son, your daughter, your friend, your brother, your sister, your coworker, your neighbor? What, are you, what would you be willing to give to build influence, to keep influence? Just remember what I said at the beginning, this is all about influence. You cannot add value to somebody's life and help them find Jesus in a good, long-lasting way unless you have influenced people. What would you be willing to do? Would you be willing to be misunderstood by your Christian friends? I am all the time. Believe it or not, it's fun. You're like, it's not fun. They won't talk to me. They weren't your friend. Get other friends. Look at the people next to you. Look at the people across from you. You're going to be spending eternity with them. Get to know them. Some of you are like, I'm going to change religions now. What would you be willing to do to give or build influence with someone? My kids, I'm going to charge the gates of hell. I don't care what you think about my decisions. I'm going to do whatever I can to get influence so I can share Jesus Christ with them. You know, like, Caleb, I don't agree with your methodology. Oh, great. I didn't ask. I want them to know Jesus. We're talking about messy grace. God's grace is perfect, but it looks messy when it hits our messy lives. Love is attention to grace and truth. Fight for influence. Don't be afraid. Accept people, no matter what. Know that God is with you. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for our time. Thank you for this passage. Some of us need to repent, Lord. Some of us need to repent for the way that we treated people, assumed things about a whole group of people just because of the actions of a couple. Father, others of us in here, we're not following you. We have been hurt. And I pray that maybe today there can be some people that take their first step towards Jesus. Not every Christian is like the ones that hurt them. And Jesus is definitely not like all of his followers. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Bless you. As a church, you almost begin to ask the question, what, then what does love require of us? We've been in this kind of season. We've been trying to raise the anthem of love as a church that we would lead with love. Today we talk about love and living in this tension of grace and truth. I think many of us have conversations in our own life with our relationship with God because we recognize that if you cut us open, there's a big mess in us. If people knew our journey and our struggle, they would, they would begin to say, you know what? My mess is just different. And the love and the grace that God gave us, the extension of forgiveness, the life-changing impact that's happened because of God's work in us is something that should be available to all people. 
And think about it for a moment. What, what could really happen in this world if we began to lead with love? To hold closely in the tension of love of both truth and grace. Maybe there are, there are people in this world that might for the first time actually open their hearts and their minds and their relationships to people who, who claim to follow after Jesus. And maybe, maybe a world that in some ways is ready for a fight because maybe we've been in a posture to pick a fight but actually put their arms down too. And we could learn to listen and share and talk and hang out and serve and care and allow God's love to begin to impact everyone. We so desire as a church to be a place where anyone can belong, to roll out the carpets of both truth and grace and say that everyone is welcome here. And so maybe it's a question today of kind of where you stand with some things in your faith. And maybe as you heard Caleb talk, it's his testimony, it's his journey. You're like, but, 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 but I have questions about this. And I, I see scenarios like this. And I, and I talk about this. And I understand this. And I, I think these things. And I want to let you know that tonight at 630, we're actually going to interview Caleb. Caleb and I are going to sit down and have a conversation to unpack more of his story. Part of the dynamic of what his life is about and where he leads and where he serves and conversations that are happening to, to help us understand how we can build a bridge to others in the world around us, to have a open and healthy conversations. You know, maybe you've got a middle school or high school student and we want to encourage them to come tonight. High school ministry is meeting at 6 o'clock as it's scheduled, and then they're going to join us. But we're going to meet in here at 6.30 for the interview with Caleb. Maybe you're somebody with kids. Maybe you've got grandkids. Maybe you have no kids. We want to let every adult know that you're welcome to join us tonight, too, because there are conversations, there are relationships at stake that we all, we all need to steward before God. It's not going to be live on Facebook. It's going to be an in-house conversation. And you are welcome to come. And we are going to provide an opportunity for you to text your questions to us. And we're going to interview him. And we're going to ask him some different questions. Some of his own story. Some things that maybe we need to learn. There is no child care tonight. I need to let you know that. We just weren't sure if we provided everything that we could provide enough room for everybody to join us. But if you can come, we'd love for you to come and ask some questions because you probably have a friend, a family member, or even your own journey of faith and identity and sexuality that we wanna bring and ask. You know, if you're a guest with us today, this is kind of different, or as maybe Caleb would say, awkward. We do something in our response time that literally the band begins to play and we stand and begin to sing. And when people are led or comfortable with it, they, they get up from their seats and they actually move to stations. We have people who come forward to these benches and pause in prayer. And maybe today is a day for you to pause, uh, celebrate what God has done. Maybe uh, it's a call to, to pause and reflect on what God's doing in you. Maybe it's a today to 
to just say, God, I'm sorry. I'm not sure what it's for for you today, but if you feel led, you're welcome to come during this time of singing and, and pray. There will be others that do that. Many of us will go to these tables. There are six of them around the room. There's bread and juice there because we're reminded that Jesus, in his last meal with his disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. It was a, a portrait, a foreshadowing of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it would be. It would be a reminder for us to gather around and say, it was his death, his burial, his resurrection that forgives us and gives us life everlasting. If you have a relationship with Jesus, if you believe in that sacrifice, it's an open invitation for anyone to come to eat the bread and drink the juice. Many of us will also go to the given respond boxes. There are four of them around the room. Each one's towards our entrances or exits. Oftentimes people will take a connect card. Maybe they have a prayer request or decision that they need to make after this morning and they, they fill it out and they, they just put it in there. Others of us go and give of our tithes and offerings. And let me challenge you. If you've, if you've never had a chance to just stop and pause and to think about giving back to God through the local church, maybe as a Christ follower today, today's a day to say, I'm going to make that commitment. We use a Give app, G-Y-V-E. And when you find it on your phone, you can find our church, First Christian Church Champaign. And you can make a decision to begin to give every month to help God extend our ministry beyond what we do here, but into the world to serve the community around us. Whatever your response is today, this is a time to respond. So let me just say this, if you're new, or maybe this is uncomfortable, you can also stay in your seats. You don't have to sing. All we ask is that everyone in this room, whether we stand and sing or move to these stations or we respond in a different way, that we take these next few moments and we just reflect what God may have said in your life or maybe stirring up in your life and just saying, God, how do you wanna use me? So friends, let's stand, can we? And let's begin to respond however God leads us. And may God move us.